Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, it's been 50 years since the opening of Walt Disney World, and the company has its own government in Florida. That's one of the ways in which the Disney company has been able to control their own fate and become this 10,000-pound gorilla that dominates Central Florida politics and, to some large extent, Florida politics as well. We'll discuss hunting and fishing as Florida tourism. Beaches played little role in the vacation plans of 19th and early 20th century tourists. And we'll talk about the fall of Fort Caroline. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. For better and for worse, Walt Disney World has been open in Florida for 50 years. Rick Vogelsong is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Rollins College in Winter Park, where he taught courses on national politics, urban politics, and urban policy. He's author of the book Married to the Mouse, Walt Disney World and Orlando, published by Yale University Press. Well, you know, the Disney company first looked at Ocala as the site for what they called their East Coast Disneyland. They chose Orlando over Ocala because we had better road linkages. And you could argue that Orlando might be Ocala or a place like it, or maybe Lakeland had Disney not come. I might focus my remarks on the economy then and now. At the time, when Disney came, Orlando had an economy that was uh, a two-legged stool, a term, a metaphor often used. It had uh, citrus and it had the military with the presence of the Martin Company here in the U.S. Missile Test Center, Cape Canaveral. Those had their problems. Freezes would burn the citrus crops and the uh, military uh, industry, military industrial complex, if you will, was subject to budget problems from time to time. And so there was a hope on the part of local leaders that they could bring a third industry to this area that would give us a three-legged stool. And they got that for a while with Disney World in that they brought a new industry, tourism, to this area. And tourism had never been in the central part of the state. The tourism industry had always been concentrated on the coast. But Walt Disney invented something, the theme park that attracted people to a man-made environment, not just the beach and the water that had historically attracted people. I think, but for Disney coming here, had they never come, we would not have a tourism-based economy now. I don't think that ever would have happened because I think people would have continued to come to Florida for the same historical reasons, for the beach, for the water, for the climate. 
To entice Walt Disney to bring his theme park here, the state of Florida allowed the Disney Company to form its own government called the Reedy Creek Improvement District. The Disney Company did not like what had happened in California around Disneyland. They only bought 230 acres there, and so they couldn't control their periphery. And there were two things that they wanted when they came to Florida. One was a green belt surrounding the built-up park, so that meant they wanted to buy a lot more land than they had bought in California. And the second was that they wanted to have their own private government because in Anaheim, California, they didn't control the government. They had political influence, but they didn't control what it did. And they didn't like uh, its growth controls or lack of growth controls. And so here they wanted to have a government that they could control. Uh, the key to the success of Disney World, I think, is, well, first, creativity. Okay, let's give the Disney company credit there. But uh, second, that they wanted that buffer surrounding them. And therefore, they got privatization, to use a modern term, where government would rely on a private business in order to provide public services. And the second was deregulation, that they could... Uh, provide their own building inspectors, that they would be immune to external zoning. That was really key to them. One of the drawbacks of the Central Florida location was that Orange County had recently, when they came, adopted a comprehensive zoning ordinance, and that scared them. They wanted immunity from that, and so they told the state of Florida that they were gonna build a city, a going city, where 20,000 people would live and work and play and in order to make that work, uh, they would need privatization where they could provide public services under themselves. And they would need deregulation that is to control the kind of regulations that local government normally provides. And they got that. And to go on just a little bit more, what that did really was to concretize in time the unequal bargaining relationship between the Disney company and the surrounding governments. It was an unequal relationship at the time because Disney was a big deal and Florida was not yet that attractive a place to live and do business. And so Florida threw a lot of blandishments at the Disney company, gave them everything that they wanted. And the result is that when you fast forward 50 years, guess what? They still have those controls over their own destiny something that I'm sure the Universal Company theme park that they would like to have, that other Florida developers would like to have, but they don't have it. And that's one of the ways in which the Disney Company has been able to control their own fate and become this 10,000-pound uh, gorilla that dominates Central Florida politics and to some large extent Florida politics as well. Through the Reedy Creek Improvement District, the Disney Company is empowered to build its own airport and a nuclear power plant. Rick Fogelsong. That's right. They're still subject to federal regulation. But as far as state law is concerned, they have that power. And by the way, uh, any other company that bought their land, you go back 10 years, Comcast was talking about a leverage buyout of the Disney Company. Then Comcast, a company with less of a public name uh, would own that land. And if they own the land, then they would control the government as well. And they could use it as they chose, or they could divide up the land 
to maybe a no-name kind of companies that wouldn't have the same public image concerns that the Disney company has. And that's one of the Achilles heels of the Disney company that has uh, motivated them to be somewhat responsible over the years, less bad stories be written about them in the national or international media and thereby harm that important public image that they have, favorable public image that they have to some very large extent. Despite the popular attraction, It's a Small World, which celebrates diversity, Disney has been criticized for a lack of inclusiveness, which the company has acknowledged and is working to address. Rick Vogelsong says that Disney's biggest problems have more to do with class than race. The problem with our over-reliance on tourism is that it's associated, at least in the Florida case, I'll come back to that, in the Florida case with low wages. We have uh, a smaller percentage of jobs in manufacturing today, in 2021, than we did in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, only Las Vegas in the United States has more reliance on retail services and the service economy. Now, service work is not inherently low wage. If you look at California in the movie industry and entertainment, if you look at Las Vegas, you find high wage jobs that are part of the service sector. The difference in a word is labor unions. Florida is a right to work state, very difficult to organize the labor union in this state. In the case of California, when the entertainment industry heavily unionized, in the case of Las Vegas, heavily unionized, uh, there someone can work in tourism and entertainment and have a uh, living family wage, but not here in Florida at Disney World. So that's the challenge, I think, for Central Florida is to move on up the ladder of economic evolution to produce higher value added products where we're not so reliant upon tourism. But just quickly here, there's a saying uh, among uh, some economic historians about path dependence, that where you start from in economic evolution determines where you can get to. And some places you can't get to from where you start. And that's the question, whether Central Florida can evolve beyond tourism or not. I think the record of the last 20 years suggests that we may be stuck with Disney and tourism. Rick Fogelsong is author of the book Married to the Mouse, Walt Disney World and Orlando. He participated in the panel discussion 50 Years of Walt Disney World as part of the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum, accessible online at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find discounted books on Florida history and culture and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. It sits above the mantel on a couple rusty nails. And it's worth a bunch of money, but it damn sure ain't for sale. 
The good Lord only knows all the stories it could tell Granddaddy's gun. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, there is, of course, much to Florida history and culture beyond the theme parks, but tourism has been prevalent in the state for quite some time. Yes, we've talked about tourism before theme parks several times, but we haven't been specific about what people did before there were rides and costumed characters. In some respects, they did the same things they enjoyed in other locales, but in Florida. It seemed more exotic and adventurous. Hunting, fishing, boating, and golfing occupied the time of winter visitors who spent weeks, not days, at luxurious hotels. Beaches played little role in the vacation plans of 19th and early 20th century tourists, but by the 1920s, surf, sand, and a healthy tan were the rage for younger visitors. Even for them, some of the older recreational pastimes continued to be important. The intersection of tourism and environmental history with studies of hunting and fishing tell us a lot about social attitudes, race, class, and the development of conservation and environmental regulatory agencies. As Marjorie Kennan Rawlings showed us in The Yearling, hunting and fishing were essential to the well-being of families trying to scrape a living out of poor land. Their knowledge of the habits and habitats of the fish, birds, and mammals living nearby made these men valuable as guides for those with more time and money who came to Florida not in search of food, but recreation. Renting out their boats and knowledge of the waterways and best fishing sites brought in cash for families with few opportunities to improve their economic status. Leading parties of hunters to rookeries, salt licks, ponds, and feeding grounds of the avian and mammal populations that exemplified Florida's biological diversity satisfied the masculine urges of the day and decimated the wildlife. Charlie Venuto used the Journal of the Harvard Canaveral Club, a hunting club organized by members of the class of 1888, to demonstrate the initial abundance of wildlife, the profligate hunting practices of the time, and the rapid decline of waterfowl. Initially, these solid young men of Boston hunted from blinds supplied with wicker chairs and cigars. Even those with minimal shooting skills could kill more than 200 ducks per day. Few were eaten, and most were simply buried by the club staff. Now, Connie, some hunting lodges made sure that there was plenty of game available, and, and some of them were in a more manufactured southern setting, right? Indeed. A different kind of sport tourism took place along the shores of Lake Monroe, where New York wine merchant Frederick DeBerry established his vacation home and hunting lodge. By 1940, the DeBerry Hall hunting lands had grown to more than 6,000 acres of managed game. DeBerry Hall entertained the invited elite that included U.S. presidents and the highest levels of American society. As Sarah Thorncroft noted in her M.A. thesis on DeBerry Hall, Guests hunted on land stocked with native doves and bobwhite quail and birds raised by DeBerry game managers. 
The land itself was groomed for hunting with trimmed vegetation and spread corn and millet to attract the birds and ensure that guests enjoyed a satisfactory hunting experience. Twice a week, DeBerry staff hunted bird predators to minimize natural population reduction. DeBerry Hall was not unique in offering managed hunting lands. In the low country of South Carolina and in other parts of the Deep South, northern investors bought up former cotton and rice plantations that had fallen on hard times and converted them into sport hunting plantations, offering an outdoor experience with a, quote, authentic southern flavor. DeBerry Hall differed from other such ventures only in its lack of a plantation history. It was built by Frederick DeBerry in the 1870s, but like other sport hunting plantations, it employed a black staff to manage the game and provide Old South authenticity. Now, there were more activities than hunting for tourists. Golfing has been a popular occupation for Florida tourists for more than a century. Golfing quickly developed as an essential part of Florida's winter tourism experience. And as Scott Kingdon suggested, golf played an essential role in the 1920s Florida land boom. In the hyper-competitive atmosphere of land sales and development, competition between the best golfers in the world drove development as well. The 1920s boom attracted schemers and shady characters of all kinds, including handsome Jack Taylor, who had escaped to Europe after a stock-buying scheme went belly-up in 1921. Back in Florida in 1924, he and two partners purchased 2,000 acres of land near St. Petersburg and announced plans for the construction of Mediterranean Revival Homes, an 18-hole championship golf course, and a hotel. Local businessmen flocked to his scheme with dollar signs in their eyes. The golf course was the centerpiece of the development. Designed by golf architect Donald Ross, the course opened in December 1925 as professional golfer Walter Hagen signed a four-year contract with the course for $30,000 a year, an unheard of sum. Not to be outdone, the rival city of Sarasota also got into the development game and claimed the title of a city founded as a place to play golf, a mouthful that promoters hoped would overcome any advantage St. Petersburg may have gained with its new golf course. The rivalry led to what Kingdon called the match of the century, a 1926 contest between Hagen and Bobby Jones, the reigning U.S. amateur champion and the golfer associated with the Sarasota course. The match would consist of 72 holes played between the two courses. I'll let you read the article, Match of the Century, to learn who won, but suffice it to say the developers did not have much time left before their dreams would crumble in a Florida-style collapse all too familiar in the state's history. Looking at tourism outside the roadside attractions and theme parks so familiar to Florida's travel history, we can see that hunting and golf were important to the development of the state. And of course, golfing remains popular today. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, 
and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Granddaddy's gone. Sits above the mantle on a couple rusty nails, and it's worth a bunch of money, but it damn sure ain't for sale. This is Florida Frontiers. Before the Spanish established the first permanent European settlement in what would become the United States at St. Augustine, the French established Fort Caroline. Holly Baker has more. In 1564, René Goulain de Laudonnaire, a French Huguenot explorer, founded Fort Caroline near present-day Jacksonville in Duval County. The fort served as a refuge for French Huguenots who were being persecuted in France for being Protestant instead of Catholic. On September 20, 1565, 400 Spanish soldiers commanded by Pedro Menendez de Avalos attacked Fort Caroline in an effort to expel the French from Florida. Nearly 150 French colonists were killed while one Spanish soldier was lightly wounded. Dr. Christophe Boucher is an associate professor of history at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. I recently talked to Dr. Boucher about his article in the fall 2018 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly titled, The Greatest Assemblers in the World, Tamuquas, Spaniards, and the Fall of Fort Caroline. Fort Caroline was founded in 1564, and it was, the, it was founded after uh, Jean Ribot uh, visited the area in 1562. So in 1562, what you had was really more of a reconnaissance. Uh, the French were trying to get a feel for the area. And in 1562, uh, Ribot's expedition had actually uh, navigated along uh, the northern coast of Florida. And they had actually met a number of Timucua leaders and in 1564, um, Laudonnière uh, came back with a French contingent. Laudonnière actually made his way along the coast. Uh, he passed northern Florida. But then after a little while, uh, him and his men came to realize, you know, maybe the best spot would be, you know, what, what they call the May River, uh, which is, you know, today the St. John's River. The Tamuqua initially welcomed the French colonists, but the relations soon soured between them. Laudanaire caused tension by forming alliances with both Satariwa, a Tamuqua chief, and Chief Utina, another Tamuqua chief, and the enemy of Satariwa. By the time that the Spanish arrived in Florida in 1565 to drive out the French colonists, the Tamuqua were eager to help them. The Timucuas received him well. I mean, I think at this point they had heard of the troubles uh, the French were causing diplomatically. And so they provided help uh, for the Spaniards that was absolutely necessary. And the, the first thing they did for them was actually not to fight them. Actually, they, wel they, they welcomed them uh, in, in the area. Uh, the leader of the village also gave the Spaniards a large dwelling where they could put their equipment, and that became the core of the Spanish base of operation in the area. Native Americans also provided some important geographic information. At first, when Menendez arrived in the area, of course, the first thing he did when he arrived in Florida was to try to locate this French fort because he knew that the clock was ticking. Uh, Native Americans here again provided some important information where they helped actually uh, Menendez to locate uh, the French fort. The Tamuqua not only told Menendez how to find Fort Caroline, 
but they also indicated that he and his men could reach the fort by land, using a route that the French didn't even know existed. Dr. Boucher. Native Americans told him that there was actually a way to, to hit the French fort by land. And, and originally what Menendez wanted to do was to go by ship and, and attack, you know, sail into the St. John River and, and attack the French there and possibly, you know, create some sort of a, of a blockade. But here suddenly Native Americans told him, well, you know, there is a way to get, to get there on land. The, the defenses of the French fort at that moment were really facing the river. And um, this trail allowed the Spanish to, to actually hit them from behind. And uh, so that was another important, uh, important element. And actually, two Native Americans guided the Spaniards uh, to the fort. So, you know, and the French did not expect to see these guys coming out of nowhere. I mean, they expected to see them coming from, from the sea, not from the land. So that was a problem. Pedro Menendez and his men marched for days through the swamps of northern Florida during a raging hurricane to reach Fort Caroline for the surprise attack. The attack was so sudden and so unexpected. It was, you know, windy, rainy, and the French in Fort Caroline were really uh, diminished in terms of troops. There's a, an artist who was there, uh, Jacques Lemoyne de Morgue, uh, who had himself been injured in a battle against a Native Americans, so uh, he could not uh, board the ships. So, you know, there were mainly women, children, uh, a few soldiers who were left, but, but really Fort Caroline was extremely weak in terms of uh, garrison. So the, the Spaniards pretty much managed to enter the fort and literally catch the entire group of settlers by surprise. And the attack was very, very quick. Le Moine, uh, Jacques Lemoine de Morgue uh, describes, you know, his, the situation. I mean, pretty much he heard some noise. He just had time to, to get up and realized by then already the Spaniards were in the middle of the settlement and it was time to, to run and run in the forest, pretty much. There, were, there was a number of survivors, uh, but most of the prisoners were killed on, on land by the Spaniards. At the time of the assault by the Spanish, Fort Caroline sheltered more than 200 French colonists. About 50 inhabitants survived the attack, including women and children, and a few musicians. Laudonnaire, the artist Jacques Lemoyne, and a few others were able to escape to ships and return to France. The destruction of Fort Caroline brought an end to the possibility of a French Florida, and ushered in an era of Spanish rule. It has been presented, this event has been presented in the larger context of a conflict between the Spaniards and the French. And in the process, we've lost uh, sight of Native Americans, but, but Native Americans played an important role. And, and what is important too is that the fall of Fort Caroline was also important in terms of colonial American history because it completely redirected uh, the French colonial interests in the region. You know, had the French not been defeated, maybe Florida would have been uh, an area of uh, colonial expansion for the French. Now, after this defeat, the French like to focus much more on the Northeast. Um, but again, it, it shows that, you know, the, these events really redirected colonial American history in unsuspected ways. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week until then, visit us anytime on Facebook and at myfloridahistory.org. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.